First Peter chapter 4. We have just walked through an incredibly important section of this first letter from Peter. And in verses 18 to 22 of chapter 3, we looked over the last several weeks, the last three weeks, at 16 different very important principles in regard to who Jesus is and his suffering, and, and that his suffering brought this great victory. And so we saw <clears throat> Peter was wanting to emphasize the suffering of Jesus and what it brought to us. And so there was much emphasis on what took place with him and much emphasis on as well what it brought us. So what Peter's going to do now in chapter 4, 1 through 6, is now going to kind of flip the coin on the other side. He's, he's focused a lot on this is what Jesus went through in regard to suffering. And now he's going to say to us, because Jesus' life was this way, guess what? Your life may be this way also because he's the one you're aiming for. He's the one you're wanting to be like. And so there's a reality that you and I have to have the same kind of focus and mentality that Christ had. And so Peter is going to share that with us today. There's no doubt that as, Peter, as Jesus walked through his suffering to the great victory, that though this was written much later, Jesus knew this to be true, and it's something that needs to be true for us. In chapter 3, verse 17, Peter writes these words. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. And so for us, it's important to continue to remember that. Peter's going to give today, <clears throat> in regard to our salvation, three different time frames in regard to how you and I need to see our salvation. He's going to talk about our past before Christ. He's going to talk about the present tense as to how do we live now. And then he's also going to carry this idea that there's a future aspect in regard to our salvation. And yet with each of those, past, present, and future, the underlying thing is, is he wants us to see sin in light of those three things. Salvation has come broken the power of sin, we have been rescued from our sin, we've been united in a relationship with God, but we need to look at it from a past perspective, a present perspective, as well as a future perspective. Christ followers die once and live twice. We will die physically, but we are born physically and we are born spiritually. Those who do not know Jesus, they only live once, they are born physically and then they will die spiritually, or they're dead spiritually, and then eternally, if they continue to reject Jesus, they will die in the judgment as well, a permanent separation from God in hell. And so Peter is wanting us to see, in light of the great victory of Jesus, that we must see sin in a unique way, and we must have a perspective on it. And I want to talk today about <clears throat> that once salvation comes, that there is to be a perspective in our lives in regard to sin, in regard to the future, in regard to who we were in light of who we have become, that changes our relationship. There's a changing of relationship in regard to sin. And it's incredibly important for us to see this. And Peter recognizes after all of these great things he's shared about Jesus and the victory that's come through his suffering, that there's a perspective that we need to have of the cross that has come to us and how we are to live. So let's look at the text this morning. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 4, and we'll read 1 through 6, 
and then we will look at the text. And our subject this morning is no more wasted days. First Peter 4, 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. <clears throat> for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And for this, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though dead in the flesh, though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let's see in detail what the Holy Spirit has for us through the pen of Peter. The first thing that's very important for us to see in regard to our lives is we need to have a perspective of Jesus. This is always the key. This will not surprise you from me. My call to you and to me is to always remind us to look to Jesus. We're not to look anywhere else. That is the focus of our lives. We want to look to Jesus. Why? Well, we know this. We know who he is. We know the scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything points to the glory of who he is. But we also know this in regard to the salvation that has come to us. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews 12, 2. We are to look to Jesus who is the author and what of our faith? Perfecter, finisher of our faith. He is the one we are to look to. That is the call. And so Peter is after all of these things, these 16 glorious things that he has affirmed in chapter 3, 18 through 22 about Jesus, once as he transitions, reminds us, listen, I want to remind you, he says it again, I want to remind you, Christ suffered in the flesh. This phrase, suffered in the flesh, ultimately leads to this reality, the cross. His suffering wasn't, oh, he had some bad days. He had some days where people didn't like him. That's not... The fulfillment of his suffering. The fulfillment of his suffering was he came to die in the flesh, to bear our sin in his body, to be alive in the spirit so that our sin could be forgiven, so that there could be a payment, a substitutionary death for us where he stood in our place, bore our sin, and through faith in him, now we are rescued from that, ransomed from being enslaved to sin, and now we are in relationship with Him. And so He reminds us, listen, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, He says, you arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking. So the indication here from Peter is, there was a perspective of Jesus as He walked toward the cross, knowing that when He was born here, He knew why He had come. He knew why he was going to be here. He knew the purpose. He knew that he would die for the sin of man. So he knew this. And so there's a mindset, a perspective of Jesus that as he moved in his life toward the cross that he embraced. This idea of suffering in 1 Peter 
is not anything new. The word suffered, suffers, or suffering is mentioned 18 times in these five chapters. Seven of them are connected to the suffering of Jesus. Eleven of them, hello, watch this. Seven of them, Peter says, Jesus suffered. Eleven of them are directed to, to say this to believers. Guess what, believers? You are going to suffer. So the majority of the word suffer in 1 Peter is connected to the recipients of the letter that Peter was writing to because they were ones who were definitely suffering. So Jesus, knowing that he had come to die, had a perspective. And there were two perspectives I think dominated Jesus' life that you and I need to have. And the first one is simply this. The joy that was set before him ultimately was, yes, he wanted to, he knew why he had come, but Jesus was driven passionately to please his Father. He wanted to please the Father in every kind of way. He never spoke things that the Father didn't want him to speak. He didn't do things that he didn't see the Father doing. As a matter of fact, Jesus affirmed this over and over. His great pleasure was pleasing the Father. Just listen to a couple of them. John 5, 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and now I am working. And He's indicating, My Father's been at work, I'm here, I'm joining Him, and I love to be at work with my Father. John five thirty, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, <clears throat> because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And I believe this was the driving force of Jesus. He loved to please his father. And the father, as we know this, Mount of Transfiguration at his baptism, the father was pleased with the son, was he not? This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the father said, you listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. This drove Jesus. I think this is one of the foundational things of the perspective of Jesus as he went to the cross is he wanted to please the Father. I think secondly is that the second attitude of Jesus is that there was a humble obedience all the way to death. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 just for a moment. Go to the left there. And I want to show us something that's one of the greatest passages the greatest sections in the New Testament about the glory of Jesus. It's one that will be familiar to us. Philippians chapter 2 and go to verse 5. So Jesus' attitude in regard to going to the cross, one was the pleasure of His Father. He had come to do the Father's will. But there was also an attitude of his that there was a humble obedience that led all the way to death. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So look at, look at, think, look, look at that at 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you know him, you're in him. The mind of Christ can be something that, that is ours. It is ours. It is yours in Christ Jesus. There's an attitude that's connected with that. Look at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But here's what he did. He emptied himself. And he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And look at 8. And being found in human form, here's what he did. He humbled himself. He didn't walk around going, hey, I'm God, I've got rights. Don't talk to me that way, Pharisees. He didn't do any of that kind of stuff. He just lived to please his father. He did what the father wanted him to do. And he humbled himself just continued to trust, no pride, just trusting. He humbled himself. How did he humble himself? Look what it says. He, in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now look up here for a moment. This was the attitude of Jesus. He knew that he had come here for this. This was going to be his purpose. To please the Father, but to go to the cross, to bear our sin, to pay the price and the penalty for our rebellion against God. And he knew that. And he humbled himself to the point that he was willing to embrace the Father's plan for him, which was established, I believe, we looked at in chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, this was the purpose. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was known for this. This, but was, and then Peter says, but was made manifest in these last days for the sake of you who are believers in God. This was his purpose. He came here, he embraced it. He humbled himself, laid down his rights, didn't walk around demanding everybody bow. He didn't do that. Those who bowed, he affirmed that and he did unbelievable things. But he came and he humbled himself to the point to become obedient to the death, even death on a cross. And so what did God do? Look at verse 9. Therefore God did this. He highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that is the attitude of Christ. Look up here. We're going to move to the next point. This is critical because Peter says these words. He says, listen, since Christ suffered in the flesh, since Christ died, since Christ died, now he's going to tell us this, arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking that Jesus had. What was Jesus' thinking? Pleasure of the Father, doing what the Father wanted, and humbly accepting that, and being obedient all the way to dying. And so watch, the call is this, to love God, love Christ, love the Spirit, yield in such a way that we are willing to do what? If it costs us our life, we will embrace that. Why? Because to die is what? Gain. It's not loss. Peter actually, or Paul actually says this. I think we're going to talk about it today. We'll just say, I have so many notes today. Well, if we get there, we'll do it. But I'll just give you a brief preview if we get there. There was a time where he says, listen, I'm wrestling with whether I should stay here or not. Because I know this, it would be better to leave here and go be with Jesus. Because this is not our home. We have an eternal home where we will live with him forever and so so he says this have the perspective of jesus because jesus had a perspective point two this morning is this this perspective that jesus had you arm yourselves with the attitude and the mindset that jesus had so that's what he says in the in the second part of verse one arm yourselves with the same way of thinking what thinking jesus is thinking 
Arm yourselves. This word arm means this. It describes a Greek soldier who put on his armor, shield of faith, helmet, armor, shoes for battle, took up the sword, put on your armor, arm yourselves in the same way that Jesus armed himself. You arm yourselves with the same attitude, same way of thinking that Jesus did himself. Now this Greek word here for armor, there were two types of armor the Greek soldiers wore. One was kind of a light armor where you could move a little freer. And then there's one that was a heavy armor. That's That's the word that that Peter uses here, the heavy armor. So he says this, listen, because Christ suffered in the flesh, because he died for you, because he went all the way to the cross for you, to please the Father, to rescue us, he became obedient to death, and now that you've entered a relationship with him, and you know him, you take up the armor, you put the armor on, you arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking that Jesus had. The same very kind of thinking and you put on heavy armor because this world is tough and we got to be prepared. We need to be ready for what's going to come to us. This is a work that we are to do daily. We put on the armor of God. We put on the armor of God. We wear the armor of God. We are prepared. Ephesians 6.16 In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And I believe when we are filled with God's word, we are filled with the spirit of God, and our faith is alive, and we are aware of what's going on with us, then our shield of faith is up, we are ready to go. But when the word of God is a distant memory for us, our shield is down, and the enemy just begins to shoot things and and speak to us and say things, and we fall into his trap. Listen to these words, Psalm 119.9. And probably until I'm dead and gone, we're going to put Psalm 119 up on the screen. Because I've got to call you and I beyond our emotions. I've had so many conversations lately with people of different faith and different things, and they just, they say this, well, I, you know, this is, this is, I just feel this about God. I feel this about God. Well, you know, the Muslims feel something about God. The Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons feel something about God. Other Hindus feel something about their God. So we've got to have something beyond just what we feel about God. We've got to have an objective truth that's, that's beyond us, not a subjective one, just whatever I feel in the moment and whatever I think. We've got to have something that's strong and secure, and that is God's Word. And so my role, again, is to call you and I to look at Jesus and to see Jesus through the Scripture. So Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. So we have the same kind of mindset that Jesus had, surrendering ourselves to God, surrendering ourselves to Christ, and having the word of God being stored up in our heart. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God is something, yes, there was a shield of faith, but the sword was able to do something to the enemy before the enemy got close to you. So we ought to know the Word, be filled with the Word, and arm ourselves with the same kind of thinking that Jesus had. Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. 
He's the Word. Know the Word. The Old Testament and the New Testament is about the glory of Jesus, pointing to the glory of who He is. And if we want to know Him, we want to be armed with the same kind of thinking of Jesus, then we've got to know the Word. The Word's got to be critical to us. This phrase here, with the same kind of thinking, means with the same purpose, thought, and mind of Christ as He faced suffering. And so I believe, just to ask the question, then how do you, in the world do you get the mind of Christ? I think you get the mind of Christ by knowing His Word. Filling our lives with His Word. And when we're ready, then you and I can learn the lessons when suffering comes and we know His Word that God has designed in the suffering to teach us things. And if we're not ready and we're not filled with His Word and we're not filled with the Spirit, then we will miss out on what God wants to do in the moments when difficulty comes. How did Jesus deal with Satan? Luke 4, three temptations. What did he do? Quoted Scripture. Quoted Scripture. What's the mind of Jesus? The mind of Jesus is pleasing the Father, humble obedience to death, and He is the Word marked by, living by, He's the embodiment of, He is the living Word. This week... Sometimes I hesitate on things I, well, I, sh- I guess I shouldn't hesitate. I read a post this week of somebody that I know on Facebook, and this is what it said. Not anybody you know, okay? So you're going, what church member said this? This wasn't a church member. This is, what they, this is a person that I know well and is a believer. Their post said, love starts with self-love. And then they wrote, so true. I've really taken time to focus on me and what I want and who I want to be. And in that, I have learned to love this person I'm becoming. I hear that among Christians all the time. I've got I've to love myself first before I, I can love anybody else. That is not biblical. What, is, what does the Bible say about self? Kill it. Crucify it. Our problem is self. So we, we can't do this. This was not the mind of Jesus. Jesus came to please the Father. He came to be the Word, to be the example, to, to embody God. We can see who God is. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And for us, we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, not by loving ourselves, but by being like Jesus. He, he came in human form, but he didn't make a big deal about that, Philippians 2 did, says, but he humbled himself and became obedient to death. He put self down. He didn't exalt, even though he had the right to say, I'm God, bow. I'm, I'm God, bow. I'm the eternal one. I'm the one in Isaiah 6 that the angels are holy, holy, holy. That's me. He didn't do any of that. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. And so therefore, you and I, we must have the manner of thinking of Jesus. Thirdly, last part of verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Can I ask a just honest question this morning? Has anybody ceased from sin this morning? Any hands raised? Okay, no, I, I, can't, I can't do that as well. So this is a difficult... Uh, <clears throat> For about 2,000 years, people have gone, okay, Peter, what's your point? 
Because we are never going to cease from sin until when? Until we what? Hello, that's not a hard question. We're not going to cease from sin until what? Until we die. So what is he meaning here? Well, there's three ideas that people have had. I'll just briefly touch on them. One is in salvation, there's been the power of sin has been broken. Let me just read a little bit of some of the things. This is Romans chapter 6. You and I are familiar with this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? And do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried Therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then he says this, Romans 6, 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Listen to that, Romans 6, 7. Love that. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with them. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then he says in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 11 is critical in Romans 6. And it's this idea of this. Because we've come to faith in Jesus and because we're a sinner and we rest with things, we need to be reminded because we have died with Him and we have been raised with Him that sin doesn't have to dominate us anymore. Now, we're never going to be fully free from it, but we don't have to succumb to it because the power of Jesus and the Spirit living in us is greater, right? It is. So the power of sin has been broken. So that's one idea that people have about What does he mean that those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased to sin? A second idea is is that as we mature in faith and our sanctification, that the righteous life that we live, there is a perspective of sin and temptation where we don't buy into the lies anymore and we want to live in holiness. And so there's a purity that comes in our sanctification. So that's one understanding of what this means. And ultimately... Um, if you were to put me in the corner and say, which perspective do you have? I think you would have to go that the willingness here, because Christ went all the way and died for us, and became humbly obedient, even to death on a cross, then you and I must embrace the same way of thinking. We must be willing that if it's going to cost our lives, I will surrender in such a way that even I will die. And when I die, I will no longer sin anymore. You know, one of the glorious things that Peter is affirming here and Paul does as well is that when this life is over, one of the great things is we get to be with him. But one of the great things as well is is we will not sin anymore. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? That once this life is over with, we will, because we are his, we will never sin again. And because he died, that reality has come to us as a promise. So there's a breaking of the power of sin. 
that comes because of who Jesus is. And so therefore, we don't have to give into it anymore. There's a broken authority that sin had on us before Christ that has now been crucified now we walk in the power and the light that he's been raised from the dead and so it doesn't have to have dominion on us and eventually when this life is over with we are permanently forever eternally broken from sin hallelujah praise god that we will not wrestle the way that we do here now listen to what's been said here coming out of the suffering of christ brought this great victory, he now says, since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking. Think that way for whoever has suffered in the flesh or died to the flesh has ceased to sin for this purpose so as to live the rest of the time of your life once you come to know him no longer for the passions of human passions or, or in the flesh for human passions, but we now live for the will of God. Look at verse 2. That's what he says. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but now we live for God. So as we have discussed, at salvation, the power of sin has been broken Because of what Jesus did, he died, we are in him, we died with him. He is raised, we are raised with him. He has ascended, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Positionally, where are we today? Physically, we're here. Positionally, we are seated in him at the right hand of the Father. Our salvation is secure. We are sealed by the Spirit. And because this has come to us, Peter says, you don't live the way you used to live. You now live aiming at God's will. We now don't give in to the flesh for human passions. We now live for the will of God in all matters, in every kind of way. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh... While I'm here, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, we have been healed. So now, Jesus, here's follow Peter's logic. Listen, Christ suffered in the flesh. He was killed. There was a perspective that he had. You arm yourselves. You take up the armor. Same mindset, same attitude that Jesus had. Same way. The power of sin has been broken, and eventually it will be permanently broken from the standpoint of once we die, we will not wrestle with it anymore. But as long as we are here, we now live for the rest of our days because we've been rescued from our old life. We now live a life aimed at God's will. Therefore, he says this, look at verse 3. He's going to go back to the past, before Jesus. For the time that is past suffices, that word is sufficient, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. 
What did the Gentiles want to do? They want to live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now look up here. Beautiful flow of thought with Peter here. Here's what he's saying. He said, listen, I was 17 when I came to know Jesus. And to apply this to my life is this. I didn't know Jesus until I was 17. And so Peter would say to me, listen, you had 17 years to live for Doak and your flesh. But once you came to know him and you were rescued from your sin, you don't live the way you used to live. You now live for the will of God and you now pursue God. The time has passed about you living for yourself. So he's not giving them an out. He's not affirming that it's okay to live sinful. He's just saying this. You used to live a certain way. You had a mindset. You had a lifestyle. There were things that you did that were so anti-God. But now that you know Jesus has come, he died, you are in him, you don't live that way anymore. You don't go back. The time has passed for living the way you used to live. There's a new aim of your life. You live for the will of God. You are a pursuer of God. This word suffices literally means you had sufficient time before Christ if you wanted to be a sinner to do all the stuff that sinners do. But now that you know him, that time is done with. That's the old life. You don't live that way anymore. You know and you recognize that the power of sin has been defeated at the cross. Christ defeated sin. Christ defeated the grave. He rose victorious. He ascended, seated in power. You and I now can walk in great power today, not giving in to the temptations of the world. So what Peter is saying is, you are not going to waste your days anymore living like you used to. You're going to live differently because you recognize that the most glorious thing that could ever happen to anybody happened at the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that son so loved the father that he came and was willing to be so obedient even to death on the cross. And because of that, God has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And it's much better to confess it now than when you're forced to in judgment. And so he says, listen, the time that has passed suffices. You had enough time to live doing what the Gentiles want to do. You don't live that way anymore. And he talks about a number of different things there, and I'm going to go in, but the, but the idea here is just simply this. We are to not waste our days anymore doing who we used to be. Aren't you glad you don't have to be who you used to be? We don't have to be that. Now, sometimes we choose to be that, but we don't have to be that. There's a way to walk in, in holiness and righteousness and freedom. What's the best way to do this? Well, we've got to count things as lost. That's what Paul would say. Philippians 3, Paul says, man, I've got, some, I've got some stuff I can stack up. It's pretty amazing stuff. Not sinful stuff. Paul said, look, I can, I can stack some stuff up that would say, boy, Paul, you're awesome. Awesome. Way to go, Paul. Here's what he said he could do. He said, listen, um, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, and I was of the tribe of Benjamin. 
I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee, which meant this, that he had much, much Scripture memorized. If you, had a, you were a Pharisee, you had to have the law memorized. And so Paul had it. He got it. He said, as to zeal, listen, I had passion. I had zeal. I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, boy, I kept it. I was blameless. And then he said this, but whatever gain, whatever I could stack up on my benefit, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, I, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. That word rubbish means poop. It means where all of that goes, the cesspool of human waste, where all of that is, I count all of even my righteousness as a Jew and as a Pharisee, I count it that way because there's something so surpassing that's so amazing is I get to know Jesus. And so how do you not waste days? We don't waste days by doing this, by going back to our old life. We live in the freedom that he has given us. And he lists lists there sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. There were things in Rome that were actually, as bad as Rome was, there were things that that Rome passed laws say, you can't do this, and people did it anyway. Lawless idolatry. He said, you can't go back there. If you go back there, you're going to waste your life. And then he says this in verse 4. He says, with respect to this, respect to what? That we're not going to live the way we used to live. With respect to this, the world is going to be surprised, he says, that you're not going to join them in the same flood of debauchery. As a matter of fact, they will look at you and go, hey, you used to go to the temple and participate in all of this stuff that we used to do. You used to be a part of our drinking parties on New Year's Eve. You used to, you used to participate in this. You used to do this. You used to think this. And they will look at you and go, I don't get you. I don't understand you. And I don't understand why you don't want to continue in the way of just pleasing yourself, living for yourself, glorifying yourself. He says they won't get it, and they won't get it in such a way. Then they will malign you. They will they will." persecute you they will speak evil against you because you don't want to do the same things that they are doing and then Peter says this but here's the reality Um, they're going to have to give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead so we Peter wants to remind them listen you used to be this and now you've come to know him and so you're going to live for the will of God now you're not going to live for the way you used to live. You're going to live aiming at God's will because of what has been done for you on the cross. And you're going to live this way, not doing what you used to do. And those that you used to do it with, they're going to look at you and they're just going to go, I don't get you, I don't understand you. Listen to me, church, this morning. I don't know why you and I act so surprised that our government doesn't understand Christianity. That other people in the culture don't understand Christianity. They are not going to understand why we live the way we live. So I don't know why we are, it's a Western thing. Our brothers and sisters in Nepal, they're never surprised that the Nepal government sees them in a certain way. But you and I are surprised at this. We should not. The world system is anti-God. They're not going to, oh, I, man, I applaud you. 
that you don't do these things. The world is not going to do that. And though yet at times there is a respect that's there that maybe they won't communicate that there's something about us that lives lives for something greater than ourselves. And so he says, listen, living this way means you're going to live a life contrary to culture, but yet the culture is not going to applaud you. It's going to malign you. But you need to remember that God is the ultimate judge, that as they persecute you and they malign you, you need to remember God's going to make everything right. And it says this, Peter writes here, it's an accounting word. David knows about this accounting. You, it marks down everything that's there, and God is keeping an account of those who have rejected God and who persecute his people, and there's coming a day where God's going to make everything right. It says he is ready. That word ready means he will do so immediately when he comes. He will judge them, and he will make things right. So look at 6. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So here's what he means. Here's a little, sometimes a little bit difficult to understand what he's saying here, but here's what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, here's the reality. There are people who have died. They are believers and they have died since Jesus ascended. They've come to faith and they've died for their faith. And they were judged by the world according to fleshly standards. That's what he says in the second part of the verse. Though they were judged in the flesh the way people are. So the gospel was preached to them. They came to faith. The world looked at them and said, we don't value you. They were killed for their faith. I was reading last night, I think, uh, I think it's in Acts 12. I was kind of reading ahead last night on the back porch in Acts. And, uh, and I think James is, James is killed in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 12, I believe it is. Or actually, I can't remember exactly where it is. And so, so the world, Herod, was behind that. So Herod looked at James and just thought, I'm going to kill him. And he did, and he saw that it pleased the Jews, and so he had Peter arrested. And he was going to, I think, do, the apparent thing was that he was going to do the same thing to Peter. He was going to have Peter killed as he had James killed. And so they were judged by Herod and judged according to the flesh. But watch this. Look what it says there. So the gospel was preached to them, they came to faith. The world judged them, thought, oh, you're not worthy of anything. You're worth death. We don't need you around. But here's what God did, that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So once we come to know Jesus, the world may judge us according to its fleshly standards. You Christ followers, I don't get y'all. Y'all are so anti LGBT and all the stuff that they just think about us and all the things that they say and and y'all are so hateful and it's not I I agree that sometimes Christians are really really hateful but we also stand for biblical standards and we live according to biblical standards and that means sometimes we speak the truth in love it has needs to be in love we speak the truth in love even to a culture that doesn't get God And we trust God with the reality of that. And the world will judge us according to fleshly standards. And they'll say, okay, y'all are trying to hold us back from being progressive, from moving forward to all this kind of stuff. And they will judge us according to the flesh. And even though we may lose our lives, because we know him, we've been made alive. And we will live as Jesus lives. Remember what he said, verse 18, 1 Peter 3, 18. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, we will live 
Same idea. Peter's connecting these two. We will live as Jesus lived. He died in the flesh, but he was alive in the spirit. If we know him, we'll die in the flesh. We will live in the spirit. So Peter's reminding these believers, don't waste your life living for things that do not matter. Don't live the way you used to be. You have been... You have been rescued by the greatest thing that could ever be done. So therefore now be zealous for good works to live for the glory of God. I want to touch on just a couple of things and we're going to close in a unique way today. Why should you and I hate sin? Firstly, you and I should hate sin because of what it did to Jesus. We should just hate sin because of what it did to Jesus. Secondly, we should hate sin because of what it does to us and what it does to other people. Oh, gosh, just the devastation that sin brings. We should hate sin because, according to verse 2, sin is contrary to God's will. And we want his kingdom to come. We want his will to be done here on earth as it's done in heaven. So sin is a hatred, and we hate it because it's contrary to God's will. Fourthly, The dangers of sin leads you and I as believers to love and long for obedience. We see the trouble that sin brings. And so what do we want to do? We long for, I don't want to be that way. That's just just robbing of life. And so the, the devastation of sin leads me to love obedience and to become humbly obedient like Jesus did. Even to the point, even if we have to die, to do so in such a way to honor him. And so even the dangers of sin lead us to say, you know what? I'm going to walk in God's commands. Fourthly, fifthly, we should hate sin because of the ultimate fate it's going to bring to the lost. They will be eternally separated because of it. So we hate it. We hate sin and its devastation. And lastly... We hate sin for it mocks the great promise of eternal life. That's what he says in verse 6. We hate it because it mocks eternity and the world looks at us and just says, okay, when's Jesus coming back? Y'all been talking about this for 2,000 years now. Uh, Whatever. When's he coming back? Well, he is. And the world can mock and it can say things, but it's important for us. I want to close with something different this morning and then we're going to sing one last song. I'm going to allow another pastor to finish up my sermon this morning. You know, there's some of those sermons that you've seen and heard in your lifetime that you just can't forget. Um, this is a piece of one that, that I will never forget. I, I pretty consistently, probably six or seven times a year, watch this seven-minute clip. So I want you to watch this this morning and then we're going to pray. You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. 
you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. Which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference. Because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell. And that's all you want. You don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. And that's a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and then in retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80, and going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way, over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost, a, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick, in the hardest places. And 20 years 
after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with a death in a moment? Is this a tragedy, I asked? It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy, and there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord. My shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God, look at my boat, God. Well, not for Ruby and not for Laura. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. So I want to pose a question to us this morning. What are we going to do? Because our culture says, live for self. Jesus went to the cross to say, don't live for yourself, live for me. And I will do something with your life that's far better than you could ever plan and do. Church, been really burdened this week just at my own life in this text. So I want to pose it to us. What are we going to do today? Every one of us in this room today, this, this family in here today, Life Point people in here today, what are we going to do? Are we going to live the way we used to or are we going to live for the will of God? Are we going to waste our days or are we going to live them for what counts? So from the youngest to students, to the oldest in the room today, what 
are we going to do? Is it going to be more of Jesus or is it going to be less of Jesus? Those are the choices before us. That's Peter's point. Because of this, those who now know him no longer live for themselves, but they live for him who died for them. Until we don't breathe anymore, we don't waste our days. Let's don't waste our lives. Let's pray.